0: This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm
1: Charles Feldman. The hope of reducing the dangers of COVID a little closer to reality. Pfizer joining Merck in offering up a pill that could radically reduce hospitalizations and deaths. We'll go in-depth. Vaccine booster shots are not exactly flying off the shelves in California. Demand well below expectations. We'll try to find out why. And as our wildfire season looks to be winding down, one expert poses this question. Are we fighting fires and managing forests all wrong? And are those the biggest contributors to megafires, more so than climate change?
0: California looking to overhaul the math curriculum, but uh, plenty of critics say the changes, they don't add up. Education set to become the premier political issue of the midterms, especially after the results from Virginia this week. And then we'll check in on Congress, where the two massive pieces of legislation might finally be passed out of the House. Then again, they might not. And then nothing will happen again. Apparently, the speaker's <laughs> going to come tell us at some point uh, what... She hopes will happen. We're all going to wait.
1: So, in other words, it's business as usual.
0: (laughs) Yes. No one knows what's going (laughs) on. Nobody
1: knows. But we start, hopefully, with something that someone knows, the new COVID treatment pill, one of them. Dr. David Bulwer is an infectious disease scientist at the University of Minnesota Medical School. He's been working on his own clinical trials of a potential uh, COVID treatment throughout the pandemic. Doctor, thanks for being back with us. Great to be here. So Thank let's talk, so uh, the Merck pill, which we've talked about on on the show before, is now authorized in the UK. Not yet here. Pfizer, of course, today saying that its version, its pill, is what ninety percent effective.
2: Yeah, the Pfizer data is is quite exciting. So what they released this morning in their the interim data from their ongoing trial of a little over twelve hundred patients that what they, they saw with the, the people that got this new protease inhibitor, this type of um, antiviral medicine, they had a 1% rate of hospitalization or death, and they actually had no deaths in that group, versus the randomized placebo group, it was 6.7% got hospitalized or, or died, and that was 10, uh, 10 people who died, unfortunately, in, in that uh, that group. And so it was 89% effective, which is which sounds great,
0: so is it similar to the Merck pill in that this is like an early treatment course, like you should test positive if you feel symptoms and then get on this within the first couple of days? That's the idea?
2: Correct. So this is a direct antiviral medicine. It, it works by different uh, different mechanism of action than the Merck one. Um, but yeah, the, this trial studied people uh, within five days of symptom onset, and there was a little bit even better response among people with less than three days of symptoms, but basically, it's fairly early in the disease course, and in this study it was within five days that it showed a benefit.
1: Now, is it likely that both of these pills will be available to people in this country in, say, you know, another couple of months?
2: Yeah, I would say probably within a month. so the the FDA is meeting end of November for the the Merck um, authorization, uh, and Pfizer will have to submit their data to FDA. I imagine it will be sh- you know shortly thereafter, whether it's early December. You know where the FDA will review this this data as well. The data is pretty looks really good. The safety looks good, Um, and so I would imagine by December these both should be available but it'll be in limited supplies and probably targeted towards a limited high-risk population.
0: So nobody has a crystal ball, but let's jump to like spring 2022 and do an educated guess. Having both of these plus vaccines, plus levels of natural immunity that uh, other people are gonna catch COVID unfortunately as we go through the winter, if they're not vaccinated, does that drastically change the picture You know, of how we deal with this moving forward? Are we finally at that point where we're going, okay, we're gonna get it together here?
2: Yeah, I I think that's, you know, that's the case that, you know, there's been a lot of uh, people saying, oh, this is a game changer. This is a game changer. Well, this actually might be that. So having effective early treatment, you know, coupled with vaccination, um, you know, this is really the way out. I think that that you've got effective therapies um, and to reduce deaths, certainly there's multiple avenues now that are possible.
1: Okay. But, uh, you know, I'm sure that there are people who don't, want to, for whatever the reason, to get vaccinated, because they don't trust what's in the vaccine, but for whatever reason, they trust what's what's in pills, uh, who are going to say, oh, well, now there are going to be two effective pills that I could take. My doctor gives me the prescription. I go down to the drugstore, pop them for a few days, and I'm just fine. Why should I get vaccinated?
2: Well, I think it's still better not to get infected, because when you get infected, you're more likely to spread it onwards to your, your friends and families and loved ones and people you're around. I think one analogy I heard today from a, uh, one of my infectious disease colleagues is, you know, penicillin treats syphilis. You know, it's 100% effective to treat syphilis, but yet it's better just not to get syphilis in the first place. <laughs> yes.
0: Yes, it's exactly. a good analogy, actually. Yeah. There. Dr. David Bulware, infectious disease scientist, University of Minnesota Medical School.
1: The things you learn on the program. I mean,
0: it's factual. Absolutely. You, know? <laughs> you don't want it.
1: No. If you haven't uh, seen those long lines, of people waiting to get into health clinics for their COVID vaccine booster shots, there's a reason for it, because they're not going. You're listening to KX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. In the
0: second hour, today could finally be the day when the two massive pieces of legislation worth trillions of dollars make it out of Congress. Also, it could maybe not be the day. We're still waiting to see. So we'll talk about it.
1: We'll believe it when we see it.
0: And then California also looking to teach math differently. So we'll talk about that.
1: Right now, though, doses of COVID vaccine boosters are not exactly flying off the shelves and going into people's arms. Demand for the booster shots way below expectations here in California. Dr. Jeffrey Luther is on the board of directors of the California academy of family physicians and as a member of the california covid 19 vaccine advisory committee doctor thanks for being back with us thanks for having me back so uh does this surprise you that uh the demand for booster shots doesn't seem to be what what people were expecting And, and i would guess it's not because these people are against being vaccinated they already have been vaccinated
3: yeah, it surprises me a little. It disheartens me more than anything else. I think partly it's a factor of it being confusing. You know, initially we came out with the third dose of the mRNA vaccines for the immunocompromised, but we didn't call them boosters. They were just third doses. But then with the authorization of the boosters of all three vaccines, there's so much choice now in terms. There was you know variable stories in terms of who was recommended to get it and who could get it. And then we introduced the concept of mix and match of the vaccines, and I think people do better when it's very cut and dried and straightforward. I think this um, all these options have, have shaken people's enthusiasm. Um, I think there are probably a couple other reasons. One is that people get a sense of security. They want to believe they're covered with the first dose or first two doses, and um, it, it's not as urgent as it seemed back in the summer. And then also we're seeing more um, after vaccine infections as people's immunity wanes and as virus still circulates. And I, some people I think have a sort of all or none mindset that the vaccine either prevents infection or it doesn't. And since people who are vaccinated are getting uh, infections, there may not be a sense in them getting a booster. I'm not sure how much that plays into it, but it's it's complicated to get people back to roll up their sleeves.
0: Do you think it's segmented at all between the different categories? I mean, is there demand for the 65 plus group, but not the younger with conditions, or have you not seen any of that? Or maybe it's just also some Johnson Johnson people who haven't gone in, gotten their second dose yet. Maybe the word hasn't all filtered down. They thought they were covered with just the one, but now it's pretty much no matter who you are, if you got J&J, you need another of something.
3: That's absolutely true. And the um, the low demand kind of goes across the Three, virus, uh, three vaccines in terms of, it's not just J&J people not coming back, and it also cuts across ages. It, uh, certainly, the seniors are the ones we're most worried about, partly because they're more at risk of infection, and partly because, remember, they were the first ones immunized almost a year ago. They were the first ones out of the block, and elderly people don't have as robust an immune system, so their immunity is bound to wear off a bit more than a younger person. So they're the ones we want to get immunized or boosted the most. And those numbers, both in the community and in nursing homes, are still not what we want them to be.
1: So how, how does the government uh, change the messaging? And, and I've said this before in the show. I mean, we're a society that, I mean, we've managed to convince people to, you know, shell out $1,000 for a designer pair of jeans. We must be able to figure out how to convince people to take something that may save their lives
3: you would think so and and you're right we're not talking about the you know 14 to 16 percent of people who are adamantly against immunization in the first place from the covid vaccine and and are probably the most unreachable you were trying to reach people who have already assented to getting the vaccine have already done so have you know contact with where they could get a vaccine and remember back in the winter and early spring there was huge scarcity of vaccine now we We have as much supply as demand could hope for. Um, The messaging has been an issue since last December, and this one has to be different because it covers a booster. I don't have a a great insightful answer into what the state and county health departments can do to drive up demand, but maybe the biggest message to send people is talk to your doctor. It gets more confusing. Talk to your primary care physician or provider um, and get all the information you can Um, Because it's people are still going to be at risk as long as there's virus circulating.
0: Dr. Jeffrey Luther on the board of directors for the California Academy of Family Physicians, member of the California COVID Vaccine Advisory Committee.
1: You know, all those mega fires we've been getting in California. uh, Are we fighting them all wrong? Well, some people think we are.
0: This is KNX In-Depth, along with Charles Feldman. I'm Mike Simpson.
1: Well, education is about to be the core political issue of the 2022 midterm campaign season. Later on and in In-Depth, we'll look at the fierce debate over education issues like critical race theory and COVID restrictions for schools that have emerged from this week's gubernatorial race in Virginia.
0: Right now, though, fire season mercifully winding down in California. We had some good storms. Um, but it's beyond time to rethink the way we fight to prepare for the mega fires that have become increasingly commonplace. Richard Minnick, Professor of Geography, Earth and Planetary Sciences at UC Riverside. Thanks for being with us. So, Professor, uh, that question to you. Past time to start rethinking some things?
4: Yeah, we need to rethink uh, the old routine. That is, uh, the, the concern of the media, who started the fire and then how, how much containment there is. Really, we got to not focus on ignitions and recognize that the cause of fire is the vegetation and it's a vegetation that can be managed. So you can look at fire as a very long-term process in which there's slow growth to ever more flammability, and then the instantaneous fire, and then you go on through the cycle over and over again. And the the neat thing is that we can deal with that slow, stable phase and manage under, under those circumstances rather than worrying strictly on the fire itself because that's impossible.
1: One of the things that uh, I was reading this morning was that, you know, you have a lot of people who are saying, well, we're having these megafires because of climate change, but that would impact places like Mexico, and they don't seem to have the same megafires that we do, right?
4: Exactly. Global warming is global, and it's not going to be preferential to one country or another. But in Mexico, the fires are much smaller and there, there is no suppression really of consequence. They've only recently gotten into it, but they have this uh, regime of slow-burning fires that move that run into patches, and the fires are always burning the old stands. But then they're going to run into younger resistance stands, and it self-regulates.
0: So and, how do we how do we try to get to that point?
4: Well, conceptually, we we have to recognize that we just simply cannot deal with fire uh, in a paramilitaristic way, that it's uh, somehow we're fighting an alien beast. We have to work with fire as a natural process, and I might add a nurse-surface process. It's always been around. And what we need to do is uh, have uh, a a system by which we have uh, uh, various kinds of uh, circumstantial re, uh, possibilities. We can have plan burns. Uh, we can make decisions to fight fires if they're too close to uh, land use, or we can have the option of letting one go because it's a good situation.
1: Why do you think there is so much resistance for people, uh, especially in the firefighting business, really, to change their thinking?
4: I think it's a legal problem. They they can be threatened to be sued at any time, and I think that's another dimension which I'm not very familiar with, But where we need to have a new legal circumstance where they are actually protected from litigation. If once protected, then they have the circumstantial decision-making, then w- people should recognize that these people are professionals and should be respected for the decisions they make whether or not let the fire go. But remember, when you've had a fire, the good news is that you've also removed the hazard that, uh, that the fire fed on uh, into the future for decades. And that's unfortunately the news that seldom gets out in media reports.
0: Does it complicate things how close and how much closer so many people live to the areas where the fires can, can burn through? that, that wildland-urban interface, as right. they call it.
4: Yeah, it, and that's, that's the sad part, and that is if you've got uh, land use of, that's solitary and in the middle of, of fuel, there's not much you can do, actually, to protect these properties if there's a really severe fire in the worst possible weather, which is what suppression does for you. Uh, in the past, fires used to burn slowly, and And they would also burn for a long time, but they weren't severe events, like we're seeing now but uh betters actually the south front of the the local mountains, for example, you got solid city and then natural landscapes without houses above in the San Gabriel mountains and in that circumstance there there are a lot of opportunities where there's empty territory where they can allow a burn to go. But they really have to have legal uh, support on this. You can't just uh, have them being sued for everything and every decision they make.
0: Richard Minnick, Professor of Geography, Earth and Planetary Sciences at UC Riverside.
1: This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman.
0: Educators have long been working toward finding solutions to closing the racial and social achievement gap in math. California looking to revamp and update the math curriculum, including exploring ways to integrate social justice themes into the math classes.
1: Well, those proposed changes sparking widespread controversy among teachers, policy experts, parents too. Trina Wilkerson is the president of the National Council of Teachers of Mathematics. Trina, thanks for being with us.
5: Great to be here. Thank you for the invitation.
1: So uh, I kind of vaguely remember when they started teaching new math, and, and I remember uh, older people at the time going, well, what was wrong with old math? So uh, is there an issue that mathematics teachers have with this sort of movement to uh, sort of meld the teaching of mathematics with things like social justice issues?
5: Well, math is high stakes in education, we know that, and change to a long-standing system is very challenging. And when we talk to people outside of mathematics teachers, many times they share the negative experiences that they've had with mathematics. And when I, was, when I often when I ask about learning mathematics, they talk about the memorizing things that don't make sense, uh, not in context or don't have meaning. And so learning mathematics through reasoning and sense making, making connections within mathematics and to our world is really important. And this will move learners to seeing what mathematics is and help them to critique and understand their world and to open it up for future opportunities. And we know that, you know, many people put mathematics in a position as a filter in education is to, to take people out of mathematics and mathematics is often used to um, keep access from students to have mathematics. And job opportunities, post-secondary education are affected. Uh, being in STEM or careers, and so okay. We need so, to so Trina, this.
1: all right. So Trina, sure. so so, give us an example or two uh, of how this would actually work in the classroom.
0: Because there a lot of people driving around, it's no. I remember math and it's memorizing the formula. Right. I don't know how you work the rest of this in. Right.
5: Well, in instead, the tasks that are presented are real-world tasks. For example, are tasks that are engaging mathematically to get students to understand the connections in mathematics. And one of the things that happens is we need all students to have access to this rigorous mathematics that's challenging and pushes mathematics uh, in uh, teachers and students to be able to understand it, be able to use the mathematics. And I think it's really important for students to be able to see the use of mathematics in the classroom. And so it's about uh, providing the task for students to do in classroom, the problems.
1: Okay, Uh, no, no, no wait, okay, wait, 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 but but stop for a second. Okay, but but, but give us an an exact, an example. Uh, So uh, I'm in a classroom, your teacher. I don't know, you, you choose what you want to teach. Uh, how do you sort of meld these concepts with the teaching of math? Give me an example.
5: So, for example, just earlier, previously, you had the, the uh, traffic report, right? So understanding how traffic works and the traffic interactions, population, roadworks, roadways, et cetera, those can be presented in a problem situation so that, for example, middle school students can explore uh where what are the best paths best pathways what are the most populated areas what kind of uh, might even work on budgets around the cost of some of these structures and so this is really important for for students to understand same thing with what's happening with our population health concerns economic concerns all of these things can be brought into the classroom
0: okay so that's Part one. Part two, I think, is what you mentioned earlier, which is people thinking of math as like weeding out the good math students versus the others and then putting them on separate tracks. Does that go away? And if so, what about the parents who are going, well, no, if my kid's good at math, they should be in the, the super good math class because they're going to go be a rocket scientist someday.
5: Well, this approach that uh, is being offered, it does not take away opportunities for anyone. And in fact, it actually opens up opportunities for all students. So I think that's really important. We need that high-quality mathematics teaching and learning for all students. So it does not take away opportunities for any students. Instead, it adds to them.
1: Are you surprised that this has become controversial? Because it has.
5: It's not surprising we have uh, you know deeply rooted structures in place, things that have been this way for a very long time. And so it is not surprising that it is uh, a little bit controversial. Sometimes we don't all understand all of the ways of the changes and why it should be changed or could be changed and what those benefits might be and what it's opening up. And so I think change sometimes is very difficult and in particular when we have structures in place that might be uh, challenging um, and things that have been in root for a long time.
0: That's Katrina Wilkerson, president of the National Council of Teachers of Mathematics.
1: You know, a long, long time ago, uh, I used to tutor math, mm. and and then now I've discovered new math. I use my phone. Yes. <laughs> when <Just> we come, <laughs> type it. A yeah, calculator. Calculator. Remember those
0: big Texas Instruments <laughs> yeah, ones? With yeah. The, you could, they could, and then they were graphing calculators yeah, and all that. And stuff. Now it's all on yeah. the phone. You just exactly. do it that. Way. I almost uh, failed statistics. Did you? Uh huh. Wow.
1: That's Would why you... I work here. <laughs> Okay, brace yourselves. Uh, You're going to be hearing a lot about education issues like critical race theory in the year ahead and also why Mike failed statistics.
0: This is KNX In-Depth, Mike Simpson and Charles Feldman.
1: From remote learning to mask mandates, the COVID-19 pandemic proving that education is a breeding ground for controversy. However, the results of this week's midterm elections showing how the Republican Party is harnessing frustrations around education issues in order to win votes.
0: Most recent highly debated iteration of the phenomenon, the growing unrest over critical race theory being taught in classrooms. Kerry Rodriguez, founding president of the advocacy and activist group National Parents Union. Carrie, thanks for being with us. So yeah, it certainly seems like as we go into midterm season, uh, education is going to be one of the big issues, yeah?
6: It is, but uh, I don't think for the reasons that we're talking about, because, uh, you know, you're seeing angry white moms screaming and losing their minds at, you know, microphones in very small districts, and and it's been sensationalized. But I've spent a lot of time over the last six weeks uh, visiting school boards and school committees and parents and cities all across this country, and the issues are pretty clear. It's transportation, it's COVID-19 quarantine protocols, it's not dealing with social emotional issues that we have of the classroom, our kids are fighting in the hallways and in our classrooms, and we're not spending this boatload of money we just got from the federal government very well at all.
1: So why do you you think this has become as controversial as as it's become? Do you think it's just, I think, as you sort of uh, suggested, just a small but very vocal group
6: well, if we're just talking about the CRT issue, the data is really clear, 74% of American parents, and we've done 21 national surveys, 74% of American families say that the they're fully supportive of teaching the truth in classrooms, you know, the good, the bad, and ugly of American history. It's only about 12% of parents that are on this CRT kick right now. When it really comes down to it, yes. Parents and families and communities are furious right now. And that has a lot to do with the fact that we had a catastrophic failure of our our public education system that happened in our living rooms. And schools were shut down, and we weren't making reopening decisions based on science. And it was much more about politics than it was about our kids. Parents and families haven't forgotten that. And now we're watching this public system fumble through trying to figure out what to do next for our kids, and we don't trust it anymore. And so we've got to confront that and understand that. It has nothing to do with the culture war that is the sexy sexy issue of the day, because You know, we love to watch a spectacle. It's like watching a car crash when you see somebody get up at a microphone and lose their mind about, you know, being racist and and critical race theory and all of these conspiracy theories. That's not it. The vast majority of parents who are actually showing up at these school boards who are raising their concerns are talking about the fact that we can't provide, we can't actually provide adequate transportation and buses to get our kids to a school. It's sometimes we're waiting two or three hours for a bus to actually return our kids home in the afternoon. We have principals and teachers who are driving our kids home from school and to school half the time, you know, so that's a critical issue. We don't have healthy lunches anymore because of the supply chain crisis that we have in this country. We got kids in the morning showing up for free breakfast and getting moldy bagels. I mean, it's it's critical condition here on a whole host of issues that have nothing to do with CRT.
0: Well, that's maybe true, but we're still wondering. I mean, it thinks like it looks like the Republicans are still going to use That. Because CRT, critical race theory, that's already a loaded term for a lot of people. And we can look at the last campaign. And it doesn't even need to be that there's a plan to teach it at a particular school or district or whatever it is. You just get up there and you say the words and then you pair them with parental choice or something like that. And then people go, yeah, that's what I want. And this is the guy I'm voting for. It's going to be this thing that gets argued about for the next six months.
6: Well, I think if you double click on that, the real issue is really agitating parents around the fact that they're not being heard or listened to. When when the rubber meets the road, you know, the Democrats have really outsourced their education policy and their education thinking to the America's teachers unions. And the american teachers unions right now are acting in the best interests of adults not the best interests of children because that's why they exist they exist to represent their adult membership you know what happens to kids and the outcomes we get for kids is kind of secondary so parents have seen that because for 18 months we have watched this play out in our living rooms so Yes, Republicans are taking advantage of this moment, seeing parents and families deeply upset, deeply concerned. And frankly, the Democrats have been tone deaf because parents have said, we want to be a part of the process. We want an equity infused educational recovery. We want to make sure this money this $123 billion we just got from the federal government is being spent well. And the Democrats are saying, no, no, parents, we're not going to listen to you. We're only going to listen to these teachers unions because they endorse us in elections and and we're going to stick with them so do you think on that opportunity they're not dumb
1: right so so do you think then that what that the pro that the republican party has come up with a winning formula because they think they have
6: well i I think what they're going to try to do and 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 again we, we can make it about crt but it's really not about crt it's about republicans saying to parents I'm going to listen to you. I hear you. I feel your pain. I understand. You know, these closures were ridiculous. I wanted to reopen schools. No one listened to you. You're very concerned about where this money is going. They're the party of fiscal responsibility. Like all of that is, is playing into the moment in the context because Republicans are seeing parents frustrated, seeing that they have no voice in the process and are promising parents and families that, you know, they're going to stick up for them. Democrats, right now, again, are just saying, well, you know, whatever the teachers' unions say is what we're going to do. And parents are furious because they watch teachers' unions have outsized control throughout the pandemic, keep our schools closed, you know, holding our kids hostage, our, our education system hostage. And they were negotiating around a whole host of issues that had nothing to do with the pandemic, had nothing to do, they had to do about charter schools and, and all of these long-standing political agenda items that they've had forever. So they held our kids hostage, parents can see it, and Republicans are, the, are, are actually reading the room and saying, hey, parents are mad, these are our actual constituents, Uh, We got an opportunity here and they're going to take advantage of it.
0: And it's good campaigning on their side. You want to help the Democrats craft a message because to your point, maybe they're lacking one here or are they too beholden to those unions?
6: Well, I got got to tell you, we're seeing some shifting. Uh, We're seeing some movement. We're seeing some people say, hey, you know, we've got to actually be in conversation and and collaboration with parents and families and communities. These guys were the co-facilitators of education and frankly, watching what happened in virginia and bringing in randy weingarten the head of the the biggest teachers union in america as your closer and voters turning around and saying i'm sorry the woman who is the the queen of keeping our our schools closed really that's who you're going to say you're sticking with we're going to vote for the other guy if we have not sent a message to our elected officials saying you know that's not where it is you know like you deserve to lose
0: Kerry Rodriguez, founding president of the advocacy and activist group National Parents Union. Kerry, thanks. We'll have more in depth to come another half an hour.
1: This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Charles Feldman.
0: I'm Mike Simpson. After week after week of internal debates and inaction in Congress, it does appear at least one thing might get done today, a big one in the House of Representatives, the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which passed in the Senate, uh, let's see, all the way back in August, could finally make it through the House and to the president's desk.
1: But there is still a lot of uncertainty. Well, it's Congress, of course, but the plan appears to be for the House to vote on the infrastructure bill tonight while President Biden's build back better budget. I always love that big build back. better We budget. love an alliteration. I know yeah. I love it. We'll have to wait a while longer. We talked earlier today. I did with uh, Congressman Ami Barra, who's a Democrat from Sacramento. And, and the first thing I wanted to know was, was whether or not this is all going to happen,
4: You know,
7: I think we're um, extremely close. It does seem like there's four members of Congress that are holding out a little bit here. And unfortunately, in a narrow majority, you can only lose three um, Democratic members of the House.
1: So walk us briefly through. uh, Of course, we have two. We have the infrastructure bill, and then we also have the sort of so-called safety net bill, which is the more contentious of of the two. If the House manages to pass both one would then be sort of uh, clear sailing the other not so right
7: that's correct so the um the bipartisan infrastructure bill has already passed out of the senate so once we pass that we can actually send it to the the president's desk um the build back better act um there's still a long ways to go and really from my end our passing it today in the house just allows the process to move forward cause We know Senator Manchin is going to make some changes here. The parliamentarian on the Senate side also has a chance to to make some changes to the bill. So that won't be the final bill. And I think that's part of our frustration with the the four holdouts on on the House side is, you know, let's keep the process moving forward and let's get those infrastructure dollars flowing to our cities, counties, states.
1: Am I correct in my presumption that the holdouts are more from the so-called progressive wing?
7: No, you know, what? Um, what's interesting is the Progressive Caucus at this point has 100% endorsed the both bills, and they said they would pass both, but they, they've both got to pass together. Um, there's a few folks that, you know, are holding out for procedural purposes, and, you know, so, again, I think for sake of country, for sake of moving the process forward, addressing climate change, rebuilding our country. we got to get these bills moved.
1: But what's the point of, of some of the things that have been sort of added back into uh, the uh, Build Back Better uh, bill by House members are some of the things that, that are almost certainly not going to pass the Senate, right?
7: You know, there, there are things like paid family leave that we actually think are very good provisions to help folks get back to work. Um, that Senator Manchin may take out, but you know, at the end of the day, we figured we should send over what we actually think is a, a good bill. And lots of negotiations here. You know, the fact that we were able to get um, ways to reduce the, the cost of prescription drugs, allow us to negotiate um, the price of those prescriptions, those are all good things that the American public wants to see. Um, we'll see what happens on the Senate side. We have no control over that, but. Let's send over a bill that we think would be good for America.
1: Okay, but let's take that, for example, what you just mentioned. Do you think that that uh, people like Senator Manchin will go along with uh, with that provision to have Medicare be able to to uh, uh, negotiate drug prices? And then isn't there also a measure that's been added at the House to uh, increase the um, amount you can deduct from your taxes, uh, state and local taxes?
7: Yeah, so that's been um, put in in the, the House measure, the state and local tax deduction, um, which you know matters to a lot of Californians where, where we have um, relatively high state taxes. Um, that has been put in the House bill. Again, just to keep the process moving forward, what we would vote on today, um, you know, it won't be the final bill, but let's get it over to the Senate so they can start you know, acting on that bill so we can you know, get America back working.
1: Okay, but, and this goes back to, uh, it would be nice, of course, if if Congress can show it can actually accomplish this, and the president certainly wants that, but uh, there are a lot of people in the country across the political spectrum, right, who are going to be left inevitably unhappy.
7: You know, that's the art of the compromise. Um, What this bill, along with the infrastructure bill, will do is create— you know millions of jobs and you know at the end of the day that's what we want and the built back better act from my perspective allows full participation in the workforce by you know, providing um, you know child care by hopefully providing paid family leave by you know providing care for for the elderly and, and so forth I, I think these are good bills um, and I think they help us move forward as a country
0: Congressman Ami Barra, Democrat from Sacramento.
1: Well, they got a lot more wrinkles, maybe a little bit arthritis, a laundry list, probably of meds, but yet they are back. <laughs>
0: they're holograms though, and now you can't tell any of that. Know, they look great, just like they used to.
1: Yeah, but they're and they're back on tour when we come back. <laughs> Veteran rock groups. You're listening to Nex In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman.
0: You know who's back? Perhaps you've heard, because we were talking about it earlier today. ABBA is back for the first time in 40 years, dropping a new album. And uh, ABBA, part of a much larger trend among older veteran music groups, uh, they're not going away. <laughs> and if they do for a yeah. while, they come on back.
1: It's like, it's like heartburn. Not only have we seen a lot of groups who had their heydays in the 70s, 80s, and 90s head back out on the road, but a lot of these older acts have been selling the rights to their music just within the past uh, year. Neil Young, Stevie Nicks, Paul Simon have all sold big portions of their music catalogs. Kat Corbett is a friend of In-Depth, longtime former K-Rock DJ, now on Sirius XM, among several other billions of things she's doing. Kat, how you doing? Good. It's so good to talk to you. So what is going on with all of these? Is it just that they need money? Is that what it is? They just want more money? That's his theory. That's <laughs> my theory. My theory is that, well, you know, they want more, more bucks.
8: I don't think anyone is being greedy right now. But, you know, with COVID, the entire music industry has shut down. So funds are needed. Um, you know, all these artists make money a lot on tour. Because, you know, let's face it, none of these uh, legacy acts ever signed good record deals, you know? So their tour money is, is what fills up the bank. Um, I know that during COVID, I saw a lot of artists selling, like, mansions. Like, all right, time to unload the mansion in, you know, Malibu.
0: And and is that is that going back to what you said that we don't we think of them as, you know, if you were a big hit and you had a pretty good stretch for a little while, then you're set for the rest of your life. But that not, that's not necessarily true because you didn't sign the well, deal, I we see- think, or, or you made your money from concerts and you've got a lifestyle you want to support still because you don't want to step yeah. down.
8: Right. I mean, look, again, it depends on your record deal. Like the, the members of ABBA, I think, are pretty well set. Um, I think they're. You know, I think they're fine, but you know, there's other artists. You know, you see artists like Taylor Swift re-recording an entire album. Death Leopard did it as well. That's to maintain the masters, so you have not only financial but creative control over your songs. In case your record label is being difficult, like say someone wants to put your song in a movie, but your record label is like, no. If you have re-recorded it, note for note, um, they can come to you and you can release it into the movie.
1: How much of it do you think, Cat is, is ego? Uh, I mean, you know, if you haven't been sort of a hot-selling act maybe in 20, 30 years, that you just want to be out there again?
8: Well, I think ego is a big part of being an artist. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, who, do, who doesn't want some accolades uh, with a crowd full of people staring at you? But, you know, older artists, you know, unless they are super huge, they're just struggling like every other artist out there to make some money to bring them to the next month.
0: Do you think it's tough sometimes when, you know, if you're not like Elton John still selling out arenas or whoever it is, but you're playing like the state fair suddenly, but you still have a crowd. People buy tickets to come see you. Does it knock you down a bit or do you just want to get out there and play and then also, you know, support your lifestyle?
8: I think it's a, uh, I think it's a roller coaster ride for those artists. And let's face it, you could have been a really big artist and now you're playing a state fair and you are hauling your own equipment, whereas someone was doing it for you in those big days, that's going, to be, that's going to be a little tough.
1: But isn't there a risk that, you know, a lot of them are just not going to, I mean, they're not going to look the same, but some of them aren't going to sound the same either.
8: No, I mean, look, Elton can't hit some of those notes either. You know, uh, it happens with age. That's what goes on with your voice. But people want to be in the audience. I mean, I would see Elton John at the drop of a hat.
4: Yeah,
0: I saw him like two years ago. He was still great. And he sat at the piano most of the time and then would get up and kind of spin around and do a bow like, hello, I'm Elton John. I'm here. Let me play another song for you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and it was great. And people went crazy for it because what? we are nothing but lovers of, yeah, of but nostalgia. Were, were they going crazy because he stood up? Yes, he stood up and he bowed. Oh, there's Elton John. <laughs> oh, Wow. Okay. It was wonderful. <laughs>
8: You know, I mean, do you really think Mick Jagger and Keith Richards like need the money? No, but do they love the thrill of performing? Yes. So, that's well, my take on the Stones.
1: Will they will the Stones ever stop? I mean, it, you know, Jagger is like what, 120?
8: 30, 130, <laughs> something. 130. Somewhere and he still in has moved, yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: what about those bands that, you know, I mean, it, the Stones are not the first to have it happen, but you can lose a member and then you keep on going. And does that ever seem strange or, you know, you're seeing most of them and the memories are, are still there?
8: Well, it's a really, that's a really touchy subject with bands because, you know, there's the old joke, you lose, you know, part of the rhythm section and you get someone else, but you lose, you know, the front person and, you know, forget it you know i mean we've seen what happened to van halen over the years so uh you know not to say that one member of a band is less than the other but the voice is a very unique instrument so you know it's 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 a tough thing yeah, and like, that happened.
1: We were talking about this, Mike and I, before, like, like the monkeys. What is there, like one monkey left? I think there's two left. There's two yeah.
8: monkeys? Mickey Dolenz and Mike Nesmith, I think, are the two that are
0: left. And they're going to the Greek, I think. Are they really? Yeah. Call, we have ads.
2: Do they, <laughs> do they, do they call <laughs>
8: themselves... <laughs> we have ads. Do, <laughs>
0: what do they call themselves, like, the two monkeys? Or they're what? still the monkeys. They're still the, the monkeys. They were in the band. They're still the, the band continues,
4: but, Charles. <laughs>
8: They also sang on hits. I mean, Pleasant Valley Sunday, which Mickey Dolan sings on, is one of my favorites. Like, I love that monkey song.
0: So who are you excited to see when they get back out there that maybe is in this group that we are talking about? I mean, Stevie Nicks is, is in a couple of newspaper articles off her landline because she doesn't have a cell phone, apparently, saying, <laughs> I'm saving my voice and I'm staying in my house in the Palisades because I want to get out there with Fleetwood Mac. And there's another group that has, you know, they've jettisoned a member.
8: Yeah, I mean, but they've all had so successful solo careers. And, you know, I would, you know, I would run naked down the streets of Los Angeles, you know, uh, to see Stevie Nicks because she's Stevie Nicks. Exactly. Like, I, if that was my way in, sign me up, you know. <laughs>
1: Price of admission. <laughs> all right. Kat Corbett. Cat, thanks for talking to us good to hear you guys yeah it'd be good to have uh, we'd love to have stevie nicks on the show stevie nicks if you're listening please come on the show yeah call us on your landline i saw you like two years ago
0: <laughs> and you're amazing all right uh that's in depth for the week we will see you in the weekend and the weekend we'll see you on monday at 1 p.m